Well, wonderful. I do recognize that I am running short on time. I am going to teach this message. And I am going to go through this as efficiently as I can. But I'm still interested in your comments. So right away, right on Slack, this isn't an official Slack question, but this will help me in the future of this message. This whole sermon series is going to be about the return of Jesus and end times. Look at that. We're talking about end times, which is great fun and a lot of like, wow, there's a lot going on in this. So I want you right at the beginning to go on to Slack and just let me know what some of your big questions about end times or the Bible, uh, the, the Bible people, the $20 words would be eschatology, the study of last times. Um, let me know questions. Just hit me with a whole bunch of questions. I'm not going to get to your questions today. I'm going to take them this week. I'm going to be processing through them. I'm going to allow them to help inform what I touch on in the sermons and the forum that is coming. So questions on the end times and eschatology. I'm going to move us now into our text. Matthew 24, 3 to 14. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that nobody leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You will see, see that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but it's not the end yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes and heat in April in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, what words come to mind when reading Matthew 24, 3-14? What words come to mind. I remember being my first trip to Exhibition Place at the, at the CNE back in 1986. Busy crowds. I'm a little kid and my dad was working at a Christian booth. A man outside the Exhibition Place stood on the street corner with blue wooden sign hung over his shoulders back to front um, the, with a blue wooden sign and with yellow writing, the end is near. He had a megaphone and he was telling people to repent. He had a white bushy beard with yellowing curly longish hair. And he was telling everybody about the coming of the end. 
As I grew older, I remember my dad going to coffee shops late at night with a pile of books, carrying around them his, his Strong's Concordance, which is the most ridiculously sized book I've ever seen in my life, piled on top of all his other biblical commentaries, going to, going to coffee shops discussing the end of the world. One of his books was called The Beast and How to Spot It. And I'm like, if it's a beast, it should be pretty visible. I figured that out when I was 11. So I'm like, what is going on here? What's, what's happening here? I remember the end of the 90s and the Y2K scare for all of you born in 2000 or later. You know, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Or if you weren't in the church, you don't have a clue. But oh my gosh, 1999 was going to be the end. It was awesome. I was at Niagara Falls waiting for the lights to drop. The whole digital world is going to fall apart because a computer can't figure out how to switch from 1999 to 2000. I don't even understand the logic behind that. Man, it was a frenzy. But then I stood in the crowd at Niagara Falls and at 12 o'clock fireworks went off and there I stood and nothing happened. And I wasn't surprised. Because somehow something went sideways on our conversations about the end times inside Christian circles. We started to look at the prophecies as, as mechanisms for us to be able to predict the future. And we're still doing it today in some evangelical circles. Not saying that God is not telling us what's going to happen. I'm just saying we're misappropriating how to understand it. And I think my evidences have shown that. So what word comes to mind when reading Matthew 24, 3 to 14? Um, <laughs> I saw a man with a, with a tat on his big fat belly. It wiggled around like marmalade jelly. It took me a while to catch what it said because it had to match the rhythm of his belly with my head. Jesus saved is what it raves in a typical tattoo green stood on a box at the end, in the middle of the city and he claimed he had a dream. What? Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right? So this, this battle, if the battle is done, somebody, somebody said, if the battle is done with Jesus' death and resurrection, why does the story have to continue? Why haven't the end times happened yet if the story's already written? What an awesome question. What an awesome question. What, is that, what does that mean? Why is, if, if Jesus won everything in his death and resurrection, why hasn't it all been fixed yet? Uh, Acts 1, to, just to address that, the disciples come to the resurrected Jesus and said, Jesus, is it now that you're going to establish your kingdom? Is this it? Is it right now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. You see a link to Matthew 24 there. Somebody asked, are we talking about the end of times or the end of service? Yes, praise Jesus, I hear you. <laughs> so today, Google has ridiculous rabbit holes about the end times. Many people are trying to use the Bible to predict future events or jam current events into the prophecy of the Bible. We will not be doing that in this series. There are two main eschatological, big word, study the end times. There are two main eschatological narratives. 
The one goes like this. Evil will be on the cusp of victory. Darkness will come upon the whole earth. Everything goes really scary dark. And then Jesus comes and the light is shone and we are rescued. Beautiful image. That is all throughout the biblical text. It just, it, this is what happens, things are going, and then it starts to go dark, and things are bad, you're oppressed, things are awful, and then Jesus comes and saves us. That is one of the narratives. But there's a second narrative in the Bible. Human cooperation with God and Christian faith, or Jewish faith, both of them happened, will see the increase and the rise of the kingdom of God on earth, and as the church or the Jewish nation is right in front of God, Jesus comes and meets them, and we have this improvement of time until the end. That also is in the Bible. We see both narratives clearly laid out in the whole corpus of Scripture. So the one says, Things are going to get terrible. It's dark. It's, it's going to be hard. The world is going to go to hell in a handbasket, and we're going to see it. And some of us look at that and go, yep, seen that. And the hope is Jesus comes and rescues us from it. And then the other one is, you know, I kind of feel like, yeah, the other one is things are going to continually improve. We will see more and more peace. The kingdom of God will be established. Everybody will start to look to the church and to the Jewish nation. And, and all of this will come to pass. And God will reveal himself in the midst of all of that. And boom, the kingdom of God is established on earth. Somebody said on Slack, a popular concept in the end times is a rapture. And how the, all the good Christians will be taken away and the bad people will be left behind. Is it... <clears throat> backed up to consider uh, that, there are, that there is a cutoff time where you have to be good by your own or you're out of luck. You could be saved after, or is it interpreted that the world stops existing at the point and it's all wrapped up and done with then? What a great question. This whole series is for that question. This whole series is for that. So when you think of the end time, does it inspire fear or does it inspire hope? What do you think? Just a little poll. Does it inspire fear or does it inspire hope in you? When you think of, 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 end, of the end of all things, someone wrote that low-rise jeans for sure are a sign of the end times. <laughs> does it inspire hope or fear in you? Since the 1960s, Christians, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard about this. Christians had this lovely word called dispensationalism. It literally means that there are different ages and eons that humanity goes through from creation all the way to the end. And these are the stages of God's grace when we would be in the dispensation of grace or the church age. Many of these maps try to map out when Jesus will return on a linear timeline. They're searching for, they're so busy searching for the exact date of Jesus' return. Maybe it was President, President Bush or maybe it was, it was Obama that was going to usher in this moment of whatever. It's, it's very American in that way sometimes. But, we, but, but the church has got caught up and they, in, in the how and they've lost the why is Jesus returning. Why is Jesus returning? 
Two narratives of Scripture have become represented in the, in the conversation of the premillennial and the postmillennial reign. People, big, complicated, technical words, and everyone checks out. There are two narratives that can be traced to the Bible due to the fact that there are two prophetic stations. So let me see, what, what, does, does the talk about end time inspire, inspire fear or hope? Somebody says it inspires both fear and hope. Someone else says fear and hope. Jesus said, I come like a thief in the night, and no one will know when he's coming. My theory is that the end of times will just happen, and there's a point when nobody in the entire world is thinking about Jesus. Somebody says it's, it's hope. Somebody says, I'm planning to go, go ahead on to heaven and watch from the other side. Um, we could arrange that. Um, <laughs> we won't know the time or the place. Um, and, and for some people, they've experienced that there's a sense of alarm and urge for preparation. A sense of like, <gasps> so I'm going to quickly touch on the two, and, I, and I'm going to respect your time. I'm going to go, we're going to be done in six minutes. Let's see if God's grace is really good. The first station is to warn those who feel secure. The first station is to warn those who feel secure. The first prophetic station. Israel's on high. It's prosperous. It's successful. You in your life. I remember in, in the year 2004, I was looking at the world going, oh my gosh, things are going pretty well. Pretty well. Even before that, the year 2001, things were on a global stage. Globalization was just, was just taking off. Economies were skyrocketing. Money seemed to be everywhere. We, the, the, human, the human civilization had taken care of, of world poverty at, le at levels that it had never accomplished before in its life and in all of human civilization. We were doing great things. We'd experienced world peace at a level that we had not experienced and had been sustained for over 60 years. Not quite, over 50 years. And so you look at that and you go, wow, it's really happening. The first prophetic stations warn those who are secure. The warning is you will lose your land because you started to think you did this on your own. You, start, you stopped looking at God. You got deceived by your own comfort. You started doing it on your own. And the warning to Israel was repeated again and again and again. You, you need to focus on the true God. You didn't do it by yourself. The first station is to warn those who are secure. You think you're on this upward trajectory, but no, I tell you that you are going to go down this really dark road. The warning is you think you're here, but man, you're going this way. It's going to turn and things are going to go bad. So, your prosperity was never your own doing, but God's blessing. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not even spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept under judgment. You hear a tone of warning there? The angels had it all together, but they weren't even spared because they turned and thought they could do it on their own. Revelation 2, 3 to 5, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from you unless you repent. So there's a warning here that when you think you are doing really super well, rely on God 
or things will go downhill and you will need to be rescued. Next week, we're going to dig more into that. It's a prophetic warning. The second is a place of comfort. I have to skip through the Slack questions. I apologize. I'm trying to get us out somewhat on time. Second is a place of, is, is for a place of comfort. And God takes heed of the suffering. I see your suffering. I know that it is hard. And God says, I've kept a remnant. I know that, that you're being oppressed. And I'm coming to fix what's broken. I'm not going to abandon my people. God is the rescuer. And this is all throughout Scripture. It's a prophetic message of comfort and hope. Your suffering is not eternal. God is the overcomer who will set you free from the suffering you face. Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It had gone down. It was oppressed. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, for death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, because the former things have passed away. It's gone down, and God rescues it. Matthew 24, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Someone on Slack said, in some ways, I don't want to see the end happen soon. I'm curious about the future and the possibilities we accomplish, but then what would the future be like after Christ returns? What a great question. So, the Bible we start off this series understanding that the conversations about the end times have two voices. It's not a linear thing of God is going to do just one thing and then it just the end comes because we've lived 2,000 years and we've been through many cycles of, of, of sociological development. We've seen great evils and we've seen great successes. And to every great evil, God says, I will come and I will restore in the face of every great evil, God promises to restore. And in the face of every great success, God says, humbly acknowledge that all of your successes come from me. Because if you don't, it will fall apart. Always acknowledge the source. And this is the way that the Bible starts to address the hope and the warning of the end times. They're both in scripture. So as we move forward with this study over the next couple of weeks, we need to recognize that the conversation is not about us trying to figure out the symbolism of what the plague of locusts might mean in the 21st century, like Hal Lindsey did when he suggested that a plague of locusts was actually a bunch of war helicopters armed with nuclear warheads. What? No. He's talking, the Bible is talking about the hope for those who are oppressed, and the warning for those who are comfortable. Okay, so I pulled it off. Let's pray, but this is good. Next week, we're going to dig deeper into this, and, uh, and I'm going to be taking into account everything that's come onto Slack, and uh, maybe even addressing it later today, but also addressing it in our next sermons. So let me pray. God, I pray that we would approach your word with humility and with wisdom. I pray that we would not be 
um, we would not be people looking for just really cool stories or just attention headlining, uh, attention grabbing headlines, but that we would be people who can understand what you're communicating to your body here on earth. For those of us who are hurting, who are oppressed, God, I pray that they would experience your hope during hard times. For those of you who are, for those of us who are feeling like everything is great and life couldn't be better, God, I pray that you would keep us cautious and our heart attuned to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.